We are continuing reading through the book of First Corinthians. Today I'll be reading First Corinthians twelve, twelve through thirty-one. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of our authority, his authority over us. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. Well, when it comes to passages from 1 Corinthians, I feel like this is an easy one. We've had some, some dicey ones. This one is so good. First, verses 12 through 31 of chapter 12 are part of Paul's broader instruction on spiritual gifts. We started looking at last week. Craig's main point of that sermon was that the whole body is building up the church, the whole church. The whole body building up the whole church. And you can make the case that that is also the main point of this text as well. God gives a variety of spirit-empowered gifts to the people in his church for the good of the entire church. But in this passage, we see two clear, distinct problems that come up that keep us from enjoying these gifts as they are intended. We're going to look at those in, in close detail. But there's a, there's a problem that Paul is addressing broader in the letter, and that is a problem of division in the church, within the Corinth church. They had division between Jews and Gentiles. They had division surrounding which church leader they ascribed to, who they followed. Division over who had more knowledge, who ate me offered to idols, who didn't. Division was everywhere. It was like they had this knack for taking things that God intended to be a blessing and tarnishing them with their insecurity or desire for praise and honor. We share 
in this tendency. Right? Just as the Corinthians found a way to take something good, like spiritual gifts from God, and spoil it in a way, we too are likely to do the same. As I said, verses 12 to 31 get into these two heart issues that are behind creating division in the body. We'll see that one is devaluing ourselves, and the other is devaluing others. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at what Paul said to us in response to those traps. My hope is that we will take time to reflect on that in our heart. Which, which pitfall do we fall into more easily? We probably fall into both. Um, but by God's help, he will help show us that. He will encourage us, lift us up where we're needed. He'll help humble us where we're needed as well. So let's ask for his help in this. Heavenly Father, we do need your help. We need your help. We are your body, created, assembled, put together to represent you to each other and to the world. And we know that we messed that up in a lot of ways. Through your Holy Spirit now, we ask that you would call our hearts to attention to receive a fresh word from you, revelation from your scripture that speaks to our hearts individually and directly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at verses 12 and 13 together. We're going to be following just right verse, verse for verse through this passage, so I invite you to have this open before you. The verses should be up on the screen as well. Verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. So here, Paul introduces this analogy. He uses it in many of his letters. That the church is the body of Christ, right? Like a human body, we have arms, we have feet, head, digestive organs, right? But we all make up one cohesive body. That's how it is in the church. We looked at this last week. In verse 13, he broadens uh, what this means beyond just our spiritual gifts, right? It's, it's broader than the gifts that we have, the functions that we have in the church. Notice he says that in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, right? So that's not their function. That's kind of their identity, their, their cultural background, their status within society, the body of Christ is made up of all kinds of people, different gifts, different backgrounds. So keep that in mind as we walk through the rest of the passage. Let's keep going. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. I am not a hand. I am not an eye. Therefore, I do not belong. So here we have the first pitfall, the first issue of the heart that spoils the beauty God intended to display through the people and the spiritual gifts given to the church. It's a trap of self-devaluation. And we've all probably been there experienced a moment in life when we doubted our place, our value. Perhaps it was on a sports team, 
on a group project at school or at work, perhaps it is even the place in our own home and family, what good am I? Verse 16, the ear is devaluing itself because it isn't an eye. Let's consider a possible example within the church. So instead of an ear, let's picture a woman who is a really good listener. When she gets coffee with a friend, she patiently gives time for the other person to talk. She's making mental notes about the content of what's being said, but also what the person is feeling. She's not just waiting for a break in the conversation for her to speak up and talk about what's going on in her life or to interject her solution to this problem, but she's perceiving the deeper need of her friend. What a gift this woman is to that friend. What a gift a woman like that would be in any church. But she doesn't feel that way. She really admires the women in her Bible study, perhaps, who are so gifted at seeing the meaning in God's word, always make such insightful comments and contributions to Bible study. Everyone is so clearly helped by them and look up to them and admire them as godly women. She doesn't feel like she has much to contribute at all, perhaps. And as a result of that, what might she do? She might hold back from sharing in Bible study. Uh, when, when her week is busy and it's hard to even get there, she might say, well, what value is it in me even showing up and going? I don't have much to offer. And so she pulls back. She removes herself from that group. Okay. I'm not a hand. I'm not an eye. Therefore, I do not belong. Why do our hearts and minds so easily go there? Well, for one, right, we all long for acceptance. We all fear rejection. It's like almost built into us as humans, right? We doubt our worth and value because acceptance and belonging is such a great need. And being rejected or disconnected from the community is one of our greatest fears. And we go there because that's what people have told us often, either subtly or unintentionally, or sometimes very directly and harshly. And this is very painful. We've all experienced it. It creates core wounds for most of us. It's really hard to overcome. And I know that this happens in the church too, way too often. And for that, man, that breaks my heart. Um, breaks my heart because I know that I have been a part of that at times. And I hate knowing that I have hurt other people in that way. I'm not a hand, I'm not an eye. Therefore, I do not belong. But what's Paul's response to this in the text? The inner critic here is saying that because they do not have a more seemingly honorable or useful function or appearance, they are not a part of the body. Okay? Paul doesn't respond by saying, no, 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 you're, you're mistaken, foot. You actually make a really decent hand. Or, hey, don't worry, you're on your way to becoming a hand. Now, his response is, you're right. You are not a hand. You are a foot. And you are still part of the body. And you are necessary part of it as a foot. He doesn't challenge us to become someone or something else, but to embrace how God made us and where he has placed us within the body. Let's look at verse 17. 
the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Right? The foot is trying to do the work of a hand. It probably will not go well. If you're a gifted Bible teacher and not a gifted singer or worship leader, but you're insistent on trying to lead singing on a Sunday morning, not only are you going to struggle and feel disappointment as a singer, but the church is missing out on your gifts as a Bible teacher. And it may be suffering because you're trying to lead us in singing when that's not your gift either. I'm not saying that you cannot or shouldn't test out different areas, or even that you really have to be especially talented to serve in an area, right? Rather, I'm saying we need to try and operate within what God has called us to do, what he has specifically equipped us to do, and not in discontentment and wanting to be someone else or something else, try and force us into that other situation. The other thing we see here, Paul's response, he says that God is behind your gifts and the function that you have in the church. He makes this point three times in the passage. It is God who arranged, in verse 18, composed, in verse 24, and appointed, in verse 28. God has arranged, composed, and appointed the various members, functions, and gifts in the church. And back in verse 18, I want you to notice this. Don't miss it. Each one of them, as he chose. Each one of them as he chose. Just means is that God has made and formed you intentionally. He has taken account of how he has intricately and specifically made you and gifted you. And factor that in when he brought you here to this specific church with all the other people here that he intricately made and also brought here. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows the strengths and weaknesses of everyone else here. And he has arranged it and composed it on purpose. So it's his choice and his design. You belong here because God has ordained that you belong here. There is no question about it. Now perhaps this is actually what troubles you the most. God Why have you made me thus? As Paul says in Romans 9. Why did you make me this way? Why didn't you make me like her, like him? Why didn't you give me that gift? Why this calling? Why did you bring me to this place? Now, questions like these are usually not just questions. We usually have an answer in our mind that we assume is true. And those answers are often accusations toward God. Behind these questions are accusations such as, you are not fair. You do not love me. You love her more. You love him more. You love that family more. You are not good to me. Now, if that is you or has been you, and it likely has been at some point, I would invite you to not ignore that and just push it aside, but to go ahead and wrestle with that with God. 
It might be good to bring a trusted friend or mentor into that area of pain and confusion and together begin seeking God, praying, asking him, God, would you help me to see myself as you do? Would you help me see and enjoy the beauty and the way that you designed me? Would you help me to be content with how you have made me? The body of Christ is incomplete without you. For the body of Christ to be a fully functioning body and representation of Christ, it needs all of its members fully attached. As Craig said, the whole body building up the whole body. So to push Paul's analogy of the body just a little bit, do not amputate yourself from the body of Christ. Do not cut yourself off. It may leave you and the church wounded, open to the infection of division Paul is so concerned about in this letter. Now, one of the main reasons we devalue ourselves, as I said, is because we have experienced or perceived others devaluing us. Paul addresses this next. So look look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Those are some strong words. I have no need of you. Now, most of us probably have not said those words out loud to someone else. It's possible. But we've probably thought them or believed them or shown that we believe them in the way that we've treated people. What's behind this? Why do we do that? Implicit in the statement, I have no need of you, is both the devaluing of the other person as well as an overvaluation of the self. So on one hand, discounting others because we perceive them to have not very much value. And on the other hand, overestimating our own sufficiency. You have no value and I'm pretty good on my own. I don't need you. So let's consider that that example I gave earlier, but in the reverse. Consider a skilled Bible study leader. She's able to see and understand the meaning of God's word really well. And she's able to help others see it too. There's someone in your Bible study, in her Bible study, who doesn't share very much. She's quiet. When she does share, it's generally not something that the Bible study leader didn't already see herself. She's gifted in that area. She notices this other woman become inconsistent in her attendance and participation lately. But honestly, to her, the Bible study discussion seems to carry on just fine without her. And it's maybe nice to not have to try and pull her into the discussion so much. And so even though you notice her, or this woman notices her, drawing back, not participating, not coming as much, This Bible study leader doesn't make the intentional effort, the extra effort to invite her in, to draw her in, to help her feel included. So a subtle, I don't need you here. We're fine without you. 
What's Paul's response to this kind of attitude? Verses 22 through 24. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So Paul implies that we conclude we have no need for someone because perhaps they're weaker, they are less honorable, less presentable. This part here about our unpresentable parts that we treat with greater modesty, he was referring to reproductive organs, digestive tract organs, right? These are things that we don't show that need, as God has arranged it, they actually require greater care, greater covering because of that. That's what he has in mind here. So, we think that they're weak, they're, they're less honorable, but Paul says, first a negative instruction, do not say, I have no need of you. You would be wrong. We are wrong when we have this thought. He also gives us a positive instruction. Show greater honor and care. Verses 25 through 26. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may, may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I would suggest that we can do these things. We can do that honoring work. Even if we are struggling to believe it's true, that this person does have value, that they do have honor, right? Kind of a fake it till you make it thing, if you will. Our actions don't always need to follow our hearts and minds, especially when we know that they are false. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you're investing in, your heart follows that, right? So if you struggle to value someone, to honor them. You don't have to wait for your heart to get behind that. You can think, well, what would it look like for me to do that if my heart was in the right place and begin taking those actions? So rather than saying in our hearts, I have no need of you, this is what we are to do, church, family of God, to honor one another, especially those who may be lacking honor, to treat one another with great care and concern, especially those who need it most. If someone is suffering, to move closer and join them in their suffering. If someone is honored, to be happy for them, to rejoice with them. Maybe take the initiative in being the one to honor them in the first place. Don't be jealous of the honor that they have received. So I want you to take a moment, even right now, to consider what the Holy Spirit might be putting on your heart in response to this. Is he bringing specific people to mind, specific situations? Is he working in your heart in that? Is he showing you something that you need to do in light of this? Be open to that. Make a note down if there's something that you need to do in response to this. Why does this matter? As I said at the beginning, one of Paul's main concerns is a division that exists in the church. 
division based on all sorts of issues. If we are the body of Christ, then we are a picture of Christ to ourselves and to the world. As Paul charged the Corinthians in his letter, we should be careful not to create any barriers to people putting their faith in Christ and being saved. Creating division by devaluing ourselves, by devaluing others, is one of the ways that we can create that barrier. One of the ways that we can tarnish the picture of Christ to the world. So far in the sermon, I've been talking to the people of the church. That's who Paul is clearly talking to. But I do want to take a moment to speak directly to those of you in the room who do not yet believe in God or in Jesus. Right? For whatever reason, there's a barrier preventing you from believing in that. Trusting that your sins can be forgiven because of what Christ has done for you in his death and resurrection. I think there's something really compelling about what Paul is saying here that I want you to consider. First is that the church is actually a pretty radical place of inclusion and diversity. And that might not seem true to you. If you look back at verse 13, though, Paul says it's made up of Jews and Greeks, slaves and free people. And yes, though, the Corinthian church struggling with this integration with this extremely radical thing happening in the world at this time of all these people from different backgrounds and socioeconomic status coming together, that is his value. And if you were to take a look at this church and actually take time to get to know people here, you would actually realize that this is actually quite a diverse gathering of people. Again, it may not seem that on, on the surface, but there are people here from countries around the world from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, economic backgrounds, educated, not educated, Boy Scout, criminal past, right? It's actually a pretty diverse and inclusive place. But the other thing that, uh, about God that is in view in this passage that I think is really compelling is his unparalleled grace. Not only does he welcome anyone, regardless of their background identity, but he welcomes them apart from their merit. All the other religions of the world, all the other depictions and ideas of deity are based on earning that God's favor, achieving enlightenment based on merit, how good or how holy you are, what deeds you have done to appease the divine power. Yet with Jesus, though we are all just feet, about that. We are the least honorable, the weakest, the most unmentionable, vilest thing in need of cleansing and covering. Christ lifts us up to himself. We cannot lift ourselves up to him. On our own, we will never be strong enough or good enough or honorable enough. Yet Christ welcomes us. Paul, the author of this letter that we've been looking at, found this to be true for himself. And he says that it actually is a picture and a lesson for those who would come later on to inspire their faith. We're going to look at that. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16. should be up on the screen. I thank him, this is Paul speaking to Christ, about Christ. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful 
appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of God. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Pay attention to this. You who are not a believer. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and as, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He comes to save the worst sinners, the vilest sinner, the most dishonorable, the most unpresentable, unmentionable, unmeritable part of humanity. That's us. It's you. So I would invite you to consider this carefully. That gift of mercy is available for you as well. So as, as we conclude, the whole church, building up the whole church, we're one body made up of different parts, different gifts. But we have these tendencies to devalue ourselves, to question God's goodness and his design and where he has placed us and how he has made us. We also have the tendency to devalue others and think that we are sufficient apart from them. We need God's help in not falling into these traps to honor the whole body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gift of mercy and grace that welcomes the vilest and the weakest, that shows great honor by giving your life for us. Lord, we need your help to honor everyone in the body of Christ, including ourselves. Continue to work in our hearts and minds through your Holy Spirit that we may be further made into your image and likeness and experience your love and demonstrate your love to a hurting and broken world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.